When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. It was about the age of 13 or 14 that I really, I'll tell you what happened first. At 10, my mom let me into her bedroom one Saturday evening to watch Saturday Night Live. And it was, the church lady was the very first sketch I ever saw on Saturday Night Live. And I started taking those characters into school with me. She would let me stay up late on Saturdays. And then I would take all those characters from Phil Hartman and Mike Myers and Dana Carvey and Kevin Nealon and take them all into work with me the next, not work, school the next week and entertain my classmates so that they were laughing with me, not at me, right? So that's the start. And then this the next kind of evolution of that was the realization that if I can become someone else, I cannot feel my own pain. <laughs> if that's not too much pathos for the podcast. And so I think that's what really hooked me. And I was about 14 when I realized just what I was meant to do with my life. And I haven't looked back. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of Set Lusting Bruce, your podcast all about Bruce Springsteen, his music, and mostly his fans. I am your host, Jesse Jackson. We are getting off the Springsteen train, though I'm sure he will come up. We are on the phone booth, maybe? We are, I am talking to, I've already spent 30 minutes talking to Travis. Travis Ritchie is an amazing character actor a writer we're going to talk about his new book and some of you may know him from a little show called community travis welcome to the podcast thanks so much jesse i really appreciate it thanks for having me yeah and i do i am a red-blooded american i appreciate bruce springsteen as much as the next guy you talked before the show about one of your friends who judged bruce springsteen bruce because of what was the song the um, one song you're like if you've only yeah, heard brings born in brings, usa yeah born in the usa i love born in the usa like i i think my thing is i'm very much a, a hits type of music listener okay. like when i buy albums especially through college i was buying the best of bruce sure. springsteen the best of tina turner Greatest the best hits, of yeah. prince yeah. yeah 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 i i love that 
one of the things that's funny is Born in the USA, Dancing in the Dark is officially his greatest hit. It's the one that went highest on the track. It's mm. it, number two. It never went number one, but it Did is. Did never have a song that went number one? Bruce has never had a number one hit. Got to be kidding me. That is, I know. That is a crime. Yes. And, and he doesn't always play Born in the USA at his live shows. Travis, I always mm-hmm. like to start beginning. Where did you grow up and what kind of music did your family listen to when you were younger? Oh, that's an interesting one. So I grew up in Wisconsin in a tiny little town called Lake Mills, which has about less than 4,000 people in it when I was growing up. And my mom came from a fairly intellectual family, I would say. I grew up in a family that was listening to Mozart on Sundays. On the weekends, it was always classical music playing Chopin and, and Joplin. And ooh, what else? She is the one that exposed me to Tina Turner at a young age. I remember that. And my dad had a, a tape of the Pointer Sisters. And so when I was a young kid, I was just wild about I'm So Excited and Neutron Dance and those songs. I discovered, so I was a child of the 80s and I listened to, I had older brothers who were 10 and 12 years older than I was. So they were teenagers in the 80s when I was a little kid. And so I was listening to what they listened to. So all of the one hit wonders, I love Aha and Take On Me. And I love Journey. And I love my brother put me onto Queen at around the age of 11 or 12. And I fell in love with them. They're probably still my favorite band to this day, Madonna. And I really love uh, Michael Jackson. I was identified with him personally. I was born with Bell's palsy and I got made fun of a lot as a kid. And I identified with the public teasing, the public scorn he endured because of his skin pigmentation or because of his plastic surgery or whatever. And uh, I actually wrote him a letter when I was, oh, I don't know, somewhere 11 or 12. And maybe a little older than that, but I wrote him a letter, never got a response, but I did send it out there. And I went to his star on the day after he died on the Walk of Fame, and I took flowers to his star. And yeah, so he definitely had an impact in my life in a pretty great way musically. I I love that. I'm a child of the 70s and 80s. I graduated high school in 77. So I, I certainly loved Queen. And we also talked about before we hit record, Billy Joel's another favorite um, and yeah. I, I also I the only it. concert I paid for, by the way, was Billy Joel. I my first concert was Tina Turner. I snuck into that one and okay. it was incredible. I won tickets to see No Doubt, which was a pretty good show, and Blink 182, and who had Green Day opening for them, which was an incredible show. Yeah, that's and then I like bought it. a ticket to see Billy Joel, and it was very disappointing. Tell me more about that, Travis. This was, I was living in Minnesota. This was one of Billy Joel's final concerts, quote unquote. I, it was at the Target Center Arena. So it was an arena performance. He didn't do anything. And because of the location, it was just bad acoustics and you couldn't really hear him very well. Mm-hmm. And, and I think he might've been a little high or a little drunk. I don't know. That's my impression. Okay. Yeah. 
And it just wasn't a good show. I was so disappointed. So it put me off to Billy Joel later in life. Is you mentioned paying for that. Was it such a bad experience? That's why you've not gone back to a concert and paid for one? I'm generally not a concert goer. I like to hear music and I like to understand the words. And I get no personal pleasure from seeing somebody 300 yards away. I get you. Or whatever it is. One I did today get to at work. I work on, on a talk show and I got to sit about 10 feet away from the Goodalls as they were singing their song for the show. That was cool. That is but, very cool. Um, and we've had some really interesting, we had childhood me really loved when we had Ray Parker Jr. on for Halloween last oh, year. Oh, I, I can imagine. And right. I got to be on stage and be his backup singer. Uh, no. Yeah. So that's cool. But concerts don't really do it for me unless it's a really good show, right? And so unless you're doing a show with, with okay, I did see, who was it? Oh, who sang um, View to a Kill? Uh, Duran, from, Duran, from, Duran right? Duran, thank yeah. you. Yeah, so I saw Duran play last year at the Hollywood Bowl. I just went with friends. It was pretty cheap tickets. And I went and that was a pretty good show. It had fireworks. And, yeah. But the, the fireworks are what made it worthwhile. Not really <laughs> seeing the band. Okay. So, that's, that's awesome. That's um, my two cents. Okay. There you go. Have you always wanted, let's start as you're younger. Did you always know you wanted to entertain people? Mm. You know, Kelly Pollock talked about look at me syndrome. Right. He has uh -huh. talked about he said he had that as a kid. And I didn't know, was there an entertainment vibe mm. in you? <clears throat> yeah, it's not look at me necessarily. I was the young I was the baby of the family. So people people alternately looked at me a lot like I got a lot of attention, but also had a ton of freedom. So that really wasn't a thing for me. But what like I mentioned, the Bell's palsy and it, it was permanent. So I've, I have a permanent paralysis on one side of my face. And. As you get to a certain age, say 10, 11 or so, when kids start becoming tiny little assholes and they make fun of everything that's different from them, I be I started really feeling down on myself. And I was always a performer. I always loved, I was always doing the little class plays and whatnot, but it was about the age of 13 or 14 that I really, I'll tell you what happened first. At 10... My mom let me into her bedroom one Saturday evening to watch Saturday Night Live. And it was the church lady was the very first sketch I ever saw on Saturday Night Live. And I started taking those characters into school with me. She would let me stay up late on Saturdays. And then I would take all those characters from Phil Hartman and Mike Myers and Dana Carvey and Kevin Nealon and take them all into work with me the next, not work, school the next week and entertain my classmates so that they were laughing with me not at me, right? So that's the start. And then this the next kind of evolution of that was the realization that if I can become someone else, I cannot feel my own pain, <laughs> if that's not too much pathos for the podcast. And so I think that's what really hooked me. And I was about 14 when I realized just what I was meant to do with my life. And I haven't looked back since. I think it was Mike Myers in an interview who said that 
I became a comedian because I wanted people to love me and it still might be the same thing. Yeah. So you made the joke about dropping out of college. I'm a college dropout too. Little nice. side note, right? I'm I, every time. The only time it's a bother is when I'm looking for a job and they go, do you have a degree? No. Click. Wait a minute. Yeah. I, I'm like, I, I don't have a degree, but I'm in freaking Mensa. So yeah. Yeah. That right. Like, and smoke it. Yes. Uh, college is so worthless. It's so, so stupid. It's such a scam. And then yeah. it's not worth the money. It's not worth less. It's not worth what you pay for it. That's what it right. is. And yeah. Yeah. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner. And Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stephanie Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. Let's talk a little bit your origin. So you decided you wanted to entertain. What did, tell me a little about your origin story. So I was in, in the middle of Wisconsin, having no idea how to go about a career in entertainment. And this was pre-internet, right? So I didn't sure. know what to do. So I went ahead and went to college because that's what you did. And yep. uh, I went to Minnesota because it was the furthest I could get. <laughs> and uh, they had reciprocity with Wisconsin. So I paid resident tuition. And I a couple of things happened in Minnesota. I discovered my sexuality a bit which was something that also you just had no idea. I, I'd fooled around with friends as, I don't know if you talk about gay stuff on the show, but, or have many gay people, but it, there was no representation in the eighties and nineties. Right. So yeah. I had no idea what being gay was. 
And it wasn't until I went to college and got on the internet for the first time that I even realized what it was. That was a big part of my origin. I was doing a lot of theater in Minneapolis. It's a great theater town, but I also knew I wanted to do film and television, and that is not Minneapolis's strength. And so I knew I needed to get out to L.A. I was in the Air Force ROTC in college because there was a side of me that was like, okay, I need to have something maybe a little more tangible since I have no idea how to go about being an actor. So why don't I be a pilot because I love to fly? And so I pursued that a little bit, but then it was peacetime. And incidentally, I was, I signed up just after Don't Ask, Don't Tell went into effect. Yes. And the, the, it was so new that the paperwork still had the question on it, just blacked out with marker. Oh, uh, how with funny. Sharpie. So anyway, I but after two years in college, the Air Force said they didn't need me because it was peacetime. They had too many right. people. They weren't paying me. I wasn't on scholarship. And I had migraines on my medical record. It's not that I still had them, although I yeah. did occasionally. But it's that I had once had them and they were like, no, nah, we don't need you. Even though I scored in the top 2% of the officer qualification exams, my I was like amazing at the field training exercises. And so that was a big blow. And when that happened, I was like, now I really don't have anything keeping me in school. So that's when I dropped out. And it took me a couple of years to figure out how I was going to get to either L.A. or New York. And I eventually got a job with a company that was nationwide. And so I used that company to transfer to another store in Los Angeles after I worked for them for a year. And that's how I got here. And uh, then just had to figure everything out for myself. It's a tough industry to break into. And they call it breaking into it because there is this weird like mechanism where in order to get an agent, you have to be a you have to be in the union, but in order to get in the union, you have to have a role, but in order to get a role, you have to have an agent and all that yeah. stuff. But I managed. And after about oh, 10 years or so, I landed my first network gig on a little show on Fox and landed a few more and eventually got community, which I was a fan of. And so I sought out the casting director at a workshop class. Yeah. And then he liked me in that class. So he brought me in to audition and I got Inspector Space Time. And that really opened up a lot of things for me from there. Yeah. I want, I'm fascinated by this. One of the beautiful things, there's a lot of bad things about modern technology, but with the internet and all the bad that happens, there is, if you want to make a movie or you want to make a series, go for it, put it up and hope you find an audience and you can do that. Back then it wasn't, right? There is right. there. You got Fox for a while. There, there was only three networks, right? So that right. was, yeah. yeah. What was the first gig you worked? Fox. It was a show called Sons of Tucson. It was okay. with Tyler Labine. Mm-hmm. And it was actually a really funny mid-season replacement, uh, a single cam sitcom about a guy who somehow has to adopt three boys and but it was pretty good. It just yeah. didn't find its audience. And it's yeah. funny because I played Peter the Pizza Possum, but my character has a name and he is Tyler Levine's character calls him his best friend. And so I'm like, oh, I would have been like the best friend character if the show yeah. had kept going. Oh, that's fun. So let's talk a little bit. I was a little bit late on the community 
bandwagon. I yeah, lots of people were. That's why it didn't last as long, very long. Yeah, I went, and then I don't remember what led me to it, but something, and then I went, oh, this is clever. This is smarter than I thought it was. Yeah, and yeah, it's a nerd show for sure. This is really. There is a lot of things, and and you talk about a a a cast, right? A community being really strong. Pardon the pun. There was such a strong group there that very quickly you're like, they truly are the pocket knife, right? The Swiss Army knife, to not mm-hmm. to be a pun, but. They could do straight drama. They could do silly farce. They could do whatever they want. You threw this cast, they got to it. When you met with the casting director, had they already thought they wanted to do a Doctor Who parody? Yeah, so it was in the script already. So the writers wrote season three, episode one, and in it, Abed has his new favorite show. And it's called Inspector Space Time. It's clearly like I got the audition and I was like, and I clearly knew that it was a Matt Smith specific uh reference yeah. because the character had a, a bow tie in the script originally right. and so at the time i was not a huge doctor who fan okay i had watched it back in the 80s on pbs with with tom baker, baker. yeah and but then when tom baker regenerated i was so young i didn't really understand what was happening i just oh my clown man is gone and so right. i lost interest friends all around me were consistently into it as as the years went by so i knew enough about it that when inspector space time came to me i was able to process it and i did watch the first matt smith episode before i auditioned then i got the role and i proceeded to watch started over with the five reboot and watched all the way through and then realized i missed something so i had to watch torchwood and yes. then I had watched it all so fast that I didn't retain anything. So I had to watch it all again. And, and now I've probably watched most of it several times. What I is, I, I don't know if I'm totally unique, but I'd had friends who had talked about Doctor Who, but I'd never taken time to watch it. I'd never watched the PBS, none of it. But I was a huge Firefly fan. Oh, and there so was good. A, Yeah, and there was a podcast that someone did an article that Captain Jack and Malcolm Reynolds were the same character. Oh, interesting. That okay. that because Captain Jack can never die, that's it. And they they both wear brown coats. They both they've been in this. So I went to my buddy and I said, who had been talking to me, I said, who's this Captain Jack? And he's always the lead in a show called Torchwood. I said, can I borrow the DVDs? And he says, yeah. He says, it's a little more mature, but go for it. So I loved it. I just, I like, this is great. So I went back to Ken and I said, hey, Ken, I really want more Captain Jack. Can you tell me what Doctor Who episodes he's in? Mm -hmm. And he says, it's just easier. Here's the first season with Christopher Eccleston. Just, you won't understand if you watch them out of order. Just watch the whole season and you'll get to see Jack. So okay. Torchwood was my entry to the Doctor Who universe. Nice. Yeah, yeah, I love that. Yeah. 
to get ready for this interview, I rewatched the not Inspector Timeline web series, which I <laughs> want to hear more stories about that. And I did smile. Ascots are cool. And I just went, oh, I see what he's doing there. They're neat, actually. Neat. That was it. Yes. I knew it was something like that. Yes. <laughs> that was fun. Was the thought that this would just be a one-off character, the Inspector's FaceTime? Or did you know that there may be other chances? Yeah, I'm a savvy guy. And as a community fan, I had seen in season two where they had multiple episodes with Kick Puncher, right? And as an actor, every time that guy showed up as Kick Puncher, he got paid a day rate. Okay. So I'm reading the script and they actually brought me into audition for both Inspector Space Time and also Cougarton Abbey, right? There's a guy okay. in Cougarton Abbey. And when I went in, I made a point to say, I'm really excited about the Inspector Spacetime thing because in the script, it says, Abed says, this is the best thing I've ever seen in my entire life. And I, I knew that, oh, this is probably going to recur once or twice or something like that. And even though the Cougarton Abbey scene is two scenes. So for an actor looking for stuff for his reel, it's much more useful in that regard. Yeah. But I was like, oh, no, I think this Inspector Spacetime thing is going to be, I didn't know it was going to be huge on the internet i didn't know, I didn't know people were gonna it, it would go crazy about it but i knew that it was gonna be worth more money with a couple extra days of, yeah. of shooting at some point so yeah i made a point to add to say that in the audition room i was like oh this is the one i'm really excited about and then they cast me as the cougar Tanabi guy <laughs> and i was like uh -uh. okay Great. Yeah, I still okay. get to be on community, which yeah. I love. So awesome. And then a couple of days, I think the plan was they were going to offer Inspector Spacetime to one of the producer's friends, but they were also British. So maybe it was actually a celebrity that was going to do it. I don't know. Okay. And, um, but for whatever reason, they called me a couple of days before the shoot and was like, the guy can't do it. Would you be willing to take over Inspector Spacetime? And I was like, yes. And even though it's only one line, in that first, Inspector Spacetime's only line is, uh, the question isn't where, Constable, but when. Yes. That's it. But I was like, okay, this is definitely for me. And, and, and then, yeah, then it exploded, man. The internet went crazy that first weekend. They created, over the course of one weekend, an entire history of this fake show. Casting all the previous inspectors. I was inspector number 11. And, and they created... Like, episode names and summaries and uh, all this stuff and uh, around the same time you mentioned the web series i rode home from that first ep from the fr that first day of shooting and i called my writing partner who i had done a show called robot ninja and gay guy with yeah. and i called him and said hey we need to do put we need to write a web series because i thought also because of what I knew about community, that they might do supplemental content, right? They might right. do either something for the DVD or a, uh, NBC was doing web series for community and heroes at the time. And I was like, maybe they'll do a web series for this. It's, it's a perfect idea. They absolutely should have. Yeah. We wrote this web series, which was very clever. We wrote it so that it could also be like a 22 minute episode of television and and then community got yanked off the air in the middle of season three and nobody was told whether it was coming back or not at the same time i started getting invites to doctor who conventions and i did i i sent a video appearance to chicago tardis i and tony lee had been at chicago tardis running the inspector spacetime panel 
And he reached out to the guy that runs Gallifrey One here in Los Angeles, which is the world's largest fan-run Doctor Who convention, and said, you need to have this Travis guy at the convention. Sean, who runs that convention, gave me a panel, and it was standing room only. And I did a reading of the web, just the first episode of the web series that we wrote. And the internet went crazy. They were like, by the time I went home, everybody was like, there's an Inspector's FaceTime web series. And so I was like, you know what? Let's start a Kickstarter and we'll, we won't pay anybody. Everybody will donate their time. We'll just raise funds to pay for rental of equipment and food to be, to feed people. Yeah. And, and that's what we did. And then we made that first season and it was got a lot of attention it was usa today called it the the best tv on the web for 2012 and i got invited to this web series festival in france i didn't even submit to it they just wrote me and were like we'd like to have your web series in our festival and i was like yeah sure i've been on youtube for a lot of years and occasionally somebody will email and say hey i'd like to show your video at this thing and i'm like yeah sure go ahead send me pictures and let me know how it goes yeah and so i said the same thing to this guy i was like yeah just let me know how it goes and he goes oh this includes airfare and room and board for one for the festival for you to come to france that happened (laughs) that's great yeah and actually at the same time on that trip i so you'll like this i asked them to delay my return flight. So from it's the web series festival was in Marseille and, but my return flight flew to Paris and then home. And I said, can you delay my connecting flight by five days so I could pop around Paris. And then by that time we had already shot the prequel episode to season two, which if you've seen that has Robert Picardo at the end of it. Yes. And, and Mayim Bialik as the voice of the time machine. Yeah. Uh, incidentally. And Bob's agent calls me while I'm in France and says, Sylvester McCoy would, says he'll talk to you about the, the, your project. So I took a bus up to London to meet with Dr. Number 7, Sylvester McCoy, and at the French pub in the middle of London, and which was incredible. So I'm sitting here just talking to this guy about this project, pitching him a character who doesn't talk, by the way. Okay. The character that I wanted him to play has one monologue and otherwise just doesn't talk. And and while we're sitting there talking, people are coming up to him going, excuse me, I'm sorry to interrupt. I just wanted to tell you how much I love you and how much you've impacted me. And I'm sitting there going, oh my God, this is amazing. And, And so in the meantime... I think after that meeting, or maybe just before, we actually had tried to do a Kickstarter for season two of the web series and failed. And then Sylvester McCoy says he wants to be in it. And I'm like, oh man, what do I do now? So I said, okay, you know what? Instead of trying to do donations for a web series, let's try to make, let's try to do it as a feature film and look for investors. We had already written it to be longer. Right. Right. And so we just expanded the story a little bit and wrote it as a feature. And and then we looked for investors and had a little bit of luck, but not enough to actually make it. Yeah. And And that's what that's where we are. That's that chapter of this story, this epic story. Isn't it isn't it cool that one, you were smart enough or savvy enough to go I can go right or I can go left. I think left has more potential, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm going to do this. And what a blessing it's been, right? Yeah. Oh, it has changed my life uh, completely. So one of the big things was that it's an ancillary thing was that when I was doing one of these conventions, 
I met one of the other guests was Melinda Snodgrass, who was a writer on Star Trek Next Generation Love and books. wrote one of, yeah, one of the best episodes of Star Trek ever. Yes. And um, of course, I was a fan. And so I approached her and was like, I'd love to chat with you. And she's like, join me for dinner. And we had dinner and chatted and she took a liking to me. And then she says, oh, I don't know, maybe later. I don't even know if it was that dinner or later. But yeah. she's, oh, you should come to this summer party at Len Wein's house. And I'm a giant comic book nerd. I don't know if you are, but yes. I'm like Len Wein, the comic book legend who created yeah. Wolverine and Swamp Thing and, uh, and a dozen extra other characters. You can't mean that same Len Wein. And she's, oh, no, yeah, that Len Wein. So I went to Len's house for a party and met a dozen other heroes of mine, other Star Trek writers, other Bear McCreary was there who did the music for, what was it, Walking Dead, I think, and Battlestar yeah. Galactica. And So anyway, I became friends with these people. And then I was eating dinner at Len's house every Sunday until he died. And it's just been, it's just been amazing. And so I'm, I love being friends with creative people. It's lots of other writers mostly. And and they're good people. And so when it came time for me to, the book that I just got published, if we can move into that. Yeah, we are. Uh, uh, hold that thought because yeah. I need to share with you my similar story. Yes, please. So I have a wonderful friend named Tom Zoller, who is an artist. He's worked on the My Little Pony books. He's best known for Love and Capes, which is a, his, is a superhero sitcom. It's absolutely fun book. And uh, so I was up in Ohio attending a convention with Tom. And this was during the first, during the Obama McCain president. So give you that kind of time frame. Okay. So I'm with Tom and he says, Hey, we've been invited to dinner. Do you care? I'm like, I don't care. He says, okay, I think you're going to be happy. So we go to the restaurant, Roger Stern, as in the death of Superman, Lynn uh -huh. Wayne, Chris Claremont, Tony oh. Isabella, Mark Evanier are all at the dinner table. Oh, wow. And, and Tom and I are at one end. And Tom goes, Chris was a good show. And he's, yeah, he says, but all they only bring is like people bring me all these X-Men books and these things. And I just wish someone would bring me some of my new stuff to sign. And mm -hmm. also it hit me. Holy fuck. Chris X-Men. This is Chris Claremont is right here. He is sitting next to me. By the way, I told him, I said, Chris, I will tell you right now that if I was at a convention, I would want to find the most obscure thing you wrote or <laughs> the, to show you I'm a true fan. Right. Yeah. Because yeah. if it's your new stuff, anyone could pick that up at the convention and sign it. Oh, sure. that's yeah. interesting. But all they wanted to talk about, Travis, was the election mm -hmm. and how they thought there were more Obama T-shirts. And Tom looked over and says, forget the election. Let's talk about who's supposed to be in the Justice League. <laughs> like, But they didn't. And so that was one of my that similar night. I'm like, I can't believe I'm here. I yeah. cannot believe I'm breaking bread with these people. So many good people. And the stories they've got. Yeah. Did you know that Len did the first New York Comic Con? I Yes, I think Len, I... Yeah. Len created Comic Con, basically, when he was 18. And in a hotel room, not a lobby, not a conference room, in just a room in some New York hotel. And apparently, 
the first ticket he sold was to a 13-year-old George R. Martin. Oh, how fun. And That's so they great. had been friends their whole yeah. lives. And uh, and George and like Melinda's friends with George. Everybody's friends with George. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. So. You have a new, you have a book. So talk about, have you, you've obviously wanted to entertain people for a long time. Uh-huh. Did you have a book in you and did you know that? Originally, this book was a movie idea okay. that I came up with in 2009. And so for those of you, so the book is called The Vampire's Curse. It's book one of Decimus. Decimus means 10 in Latin. And the idea that I had, because I am a giant nerd. So I love, I'm a, what I call an equal opportunity nerd. So I love just about anything that's genre, but I'm not obsessed about any one thing, right? I like Star Wars and Star Trek equally. I'm equally critical of both of them as well. When it comes to vampires, I think vampires are great. I don't think any monster is dead. You know how they always say, oh, this, there's too much zombies. There's too many vampires. It's uh, The market's saturated. I don't buy that for a second. I think if you have a good story, the market will take it. And for me, the 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 spark that really embedded this idea in my brain was to change the mythology a bit just one little tweak, two really, but one was to make vampires more scientific based, right? So they're not supernatural. They're just like apex predators. They can be super fast. They can be super strong. They can drink blood. They can have an aversion to sunlight, hypersensitivities. Those things exist in the real world. The other thing that I did was looked at the number 10 as a guide. And because I'm gay and one in 10 people in society are gay is the, is the old way to think about it is the old Kinsey scale. And so I was thinking, oh yeah, what if when a vampire wants to turn a human, they do the same thing. They drain a human of their blood, give them some vampire blood, but it only works about one in 10 times. Mm. The other 90% of the time, the human just dies. And then the question comes, what if a vampire falls in love with a human? What do you do? Do you have, do you risk turning them? but probably end up killing them? Do you watch them grow old and die and and be with them and have to endure that? Or do you uh, let them go? Do you not? And and decide to be alone. And uh, being a loneliness, as we've, a lot of us have discovered during the pandemic, is an awful thing. And so the urge to not be alone can make you do things that you might not otherwise do. And the idea percolated in my head as a movie idea that originally I was going to write for myself. And about four years, no, five years later, 2014, I had a particularly bad year where my dog died, my boyfriend had left me, my agent killed herself. And I was like, in order to avoid depression, I was like, I'm going to do all the things. I'm going to make more Robot Ninja and Gay Guy. I'm going to do more Inspector Space Time. I'm going to do everything. And I had this idea. I was like, you know what? I'll just write it as a book for NaNoWriMo, a National Novel Writing Month. And just, yeah. it doesn't matter if it's good. I'm just going to vomit it up. And But then Melinda actually said, hey, why don't you come over to my place and I'll help you break the plot? And I was like, I don't know what that means, yeah. <laughs> but it just means make a, a an outline. And so I went over to hit her house and together we just outlined the book together. And, and then I had an outline and then pecked away at the beginning of the book for a number of, I got a job at Universal Studios in Japan in, in 
at the end of 2019. And I moved there in February of 2020. Oh, okay. <clears throat> so uh, while I was in Japan, uh, and feeling very lucky to have a job during the pandemic, uh, I managed to figure out a schedule with my work because the, the park there was only closed for about three months. And then yeah. we had time where we were back to work. So I had a schedule and I was like, okay, here's where I have an hour every day I can start writing. And I started writing the book and got about 10,000 words in when they sent us home early. They canceled our contract and, and because of the pandemic and sent a bunch of us home early. And then I was staying in Nashville with a friend and said to myself, I desperately don't want to feel like I'm wasting my time, especially when I have friends who are still in Japan earning money, I have to feel like I'm being productive. And for NaNoWriMo 2020, I spent six weeks and knocked out another 60,000 words and finished that novel. And then I sent it to Melinda, who referred me to her, her publisher, who put it out. And that's basically it. That is awesome. It's a cliche, but did you learn something about yourself as you were writing it? Ooh, interesting. I... I don't know that I've that I learned anything about myself except that it's possible to do it. Like when you do something that big and, and 70,000 words is not a big novel by any means, but it's a lot of words. And yeah. to have the discipline to sit down every day and do it basically just told me that I can do it, right? And it made all the other things that I want to do seem not only possible but feasible yeah so is the plan for this to be the first of a series it is yeah my publisher four horsemen publications they were very into the idea of it being a series and i and that was their first question they were like oh is this a series and i hadn't thought about it being a series but i'm i'm very good at tori coming up with story ideas and i over the course of a, a week or so i was like okay what would this be as a series and so yes it's right now the outline is a four book series and what's funny is the way this ties into the whole history is that none of this would have happened without inspector spacetime right without me being on that show which introduced me to these people who introduced me to this publisher and everything fed into itself and it was really the being open to things that allowed all that to happen, right? Saying yes to opportunity. I think Ben Franklin said that success is uh, luck mixed with preparedness. And even though I wouldn't call myself extremely successful, I've definitely done some things that 14-year-old me would be really proud of and, and jazzed about. And it's just because I've I've made myself prepared to take these opportunities as they come. And that's my other big advice to people when I when anybody asks. So good. You may not feel comfortable talking about this, but I always feel like it is my responsibility. I did some episodes during Pride Month. I'm a 64 year old white guy living in Texas. Mm -hmm. I am a blueberry in a very red strawberry state. And I do not understand the anger and the hate mm -hmm. about people who are different than them. Yeah. And so I, and like I said, if you don't want to get serious, we won't, but I feel like. Oh, I'll get serious. It's your show. So if you're willing yeah. to, I'll go there. Yeah. I, I, have, I, I really think thoughts. that's, yeah. I had someone on uh, and they had been on my podcast before. Uh, they're a wonderful couple. Um, he came out 
after being married for years that he was gay and they decide to stay married mm. and it, it the relationship works for them and so they do they talk about they do a podcast talking about the many struggles that people are facing now and i said why do people hate you? And he laughed and he goes, I don't know, Jesse. Travis, why is there so much anger from people who are different than yeah. some of the people that cliche, right? Yeah. It's, so I have a, a scientific mind. I like thinking about how things come to be. And so that question has a twofold answer. One is that human beings are hardwired to fear the unknown. Our our predecessors, our ancestors living out in the savannah or even like forming tiny groups feared anybody who wasn't in their group because they were very likely to be deadly. And so it wasn't until humans overcame that kind of base instinct to form communities that they were able to grow to where we are now and over the course of 10,000 years. But but even that, we have always feared someone who wasn't in what we defined as our community, right? right? And that's why we put up city walls and that's why whatever. And it's that comes from a that comes from a, an impression that resources are finite and blah 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 blah. But the more insidious answer and the one that really pisses me off is that people in power use fear to control people under them. And so if you look at, I'm, I'll say it, if you look at the Republican Party, what they are about is stirring hatred and fear in order to, in order to push their agenda, which is maintaining power, right? It's clear, especially recently, that they can't actually govern. They don't have a plan to govern. It's just coming up with things to make the other people non-human. You look at Trump calling people vermin. It's straight out of it's straight out of the dictator handbook where you call the Nazis called the Jews rats. And the there's always this term to dehumanize someone who's not you. And and that's all I'll say about the negativity aspect of it. But what I would love to do is talk about how we can grow because my belief system, I've always called it humanism because I believe in humanity's ability to grow. And I've grown as a person over the years. And I think that uh, as far as differences go, I, I, I really love Gene Roddenberry's take on it. Gene Roddenberry hoped that humanity could grow to the point where we delight in the differences of other people. Right. Yeah. Because tolerance is stupid. Yes. Yeah. A tolerance is stupid when you think about it, because in order to tolerate someone, you have to hate them first. Yeah. So don't do that. Just change your outlook to be curious and delight in, in things that are different than you, because everybody's different than you at some point. Right. When you get down to the granular level. And the other thing that I realized, and this is when I was trans issues came to the fore, I want to say about 10 years ago, and I started really thinking about that, which I hadn't prior. I hadn't really been thinking about trans people's rights and, and what it's like to be in a body that doesn't feel like your own. And I realized two things. I came to this realization, and that is that 
I cannot think of one single attribute about being a human being that is binary. Putting trans, putting gender aside for a second. Right. Everything from height to intelligence to hair color to strength, athletic ability, skin color, everything. You cannot tell, you can't pick any single attribute that is one or zero. Yeah. It's all on a spectrum. And that's fairly, we all accept that. And we all accept that we've all long since, not long since, but within the past, I'd say decade or so, accepted that sexual orientation is also on a spectrum. Given that, how does it make any sense that gender is the only thing that is binary? It doesn't. No. And so if you can just accept that, you can realize that as far as the human beings go, we're all human beings. Yeah. And that's all that matters. Yeah, I totally agree, Travis. Thank you for letting us go serious for a minute. I think of Aaron Sorkin on The American President. He's interested in two things, two things only, making you afraid of it and telling you who to blame for it, mm-hmm. right? The other thing that frustrates me is I'm self-aware to know that as a 60-year-old white guy living in America, living in Texas, my perception is one thing mm-hmm. and it is egotistical to not accept that somebody else's impressions or worldview perspective should be different than mine that right. is absolutely expected and for you not to embrace that a african-american male has a different perspective a someone who is bi or gay or lesbian or trans has a different perspective than you. And we're all, God, I'm going to sound on Kumbala, but right, we're all looking for connections. We're all yeah. looking for community and to be loved and accepted. So thank you for that. I appreciate it. Oh, yeah. Was- oh this, the thing that baffles me is that these people, people on the right are accusing progressives and, and and democrats and liberals yeah. of hating children yeah i'm like w- stop and think for a second is there any possibility that anybody hates children yeah right? it's ingrained in our very dna and th- that's why these wars that are breaking out in the middle east and yeah. you're killing children and nobody thinks that's good nobody right. thinks that's okay and just like here, nobody hates children. And if somebody's telling you that the other side hates children or whatever, stop and think of yourself. Why are they telling me that? Yes. Why are they pushing? Because you can't build anything from hate. No, you, you can't. Can only and destroy. The other thing that I feel is you... We've lost the vision somehow for you to sit there, groups, and I'm going to call out the government, to say, you want safe borders, I want safe borders. We disagree how to get there, but we both have the same goal. Let's figure out Mm -hmm. how we can do this. I don't want children to be killed at school. You don't want children to be killed at school. How can we do this to find a way? And there is... There is just a, and I do think it is about power, and it is wanting not to give away 
that power that I'd rather it. I it's almost like the stubborn kid that's okay. We're all going to agree on the movie we watch. If we can't watch the movie I want to watch, I'm not going to agree to anything else. Mm. Right? Okay, quit being a brat and let's all watch this fun movie. Thank you. Back done with uh. seriousness. I did have a Was it important for you for your the main character to be homosexual? In Decimus, yeah. Yeah, because at the time, <laughs> what's funny is when I came up with the idea, it was a very novel thing. And I've never been an Anne Rice fan, so I hadn't read yeah. Interview with the Vampire. And yeah. in the movie, they weren't super queer. So I hadn't seen queer vampires before at right. that point. Over the course of the last 14 years, sure, they've come along. But uh, yeah, all all along, it was for me. It was just okay. something that was I felt important because is, I yeah. was out already online. I came out in yeah. like 2007 or 8. Okay. Uh, I was doing a show called Robot Ninja and Gay Guy, and I played Gay Guy. <laughs> I thought it was important to show that actors could be gay and be actors. Like I could, right. I was playing non-gay characters too. And, and that was fine. So yeah, luckily, fortunately, that has that mentality of not being able to be openly gay has completely vanished in Hollywood. Yeah. And so I think that's a good thing. Now, maybe not completely. There's some yeah. big they'll, names that you. Yeah. They'll always are, be, yeah. There'll always be a little bit of that. All right. I've kept you a long time. So we're going to wrap up shortly. But what's next for you creatively? I, well, now that I had a publisher for this book, I went to them and said, how would you like the novelization of the Inspector Chronicles movie? And they said, yes, please. I wrote that. Ooh. And that is currently with my editor and probably will be out in the spring-ish time. And be fun. Yeah. At least people will get the story. And I guess the logic there too is that nobody pays for movies these days unless they're based on existing intellectual property. Right. And so- if the book is out, at least we can point to that when we're talking to investors and say, look, it's based on this book. Um, and, and maybe the movie will get made then. There is, um, I do want, if there is a story behind, obviously, Inspector Space Time, you know, NBC and everything. Tell me this, why, give me a little bit of background of the tongue-in-cheek of the web series. And I just, every time I see it, I smile. Yeah. That's big. Part of that is because we obviously weren't able to call it inspector space time because we, NBC didn't want it. And then we got a call from a, I got a call from a Sony lawyer saying you can't do that. And what's funny is I probably could have and yeah. been safe because a, you can't copyright a title. They weren't protecting inspector space times value with because there were t-shirts and posters and stuff being sold yeah. that they weren't doing anything with so i probably could have done it but i didn't want to fight with my favorite show so i changed the title to untitled web series about a space traveler who can also travel through time which was me being snarky 100 percent, yes but also me being a little savvy again and saying this is probably going to get another wave of press from people who you know because the big company isn't letting us have inspector space right. time and that's exactly what happened. And so we managed to exceed our, our Kickstarter goal by a little bit. And then, but the thing I think that made delight you most about the web series, and for sure me, is that we, my writing partner and I, don't tend to play with parody 
the way that you see on, say, Scary Movie, right? Where you're looking, you take a scene and you spoof it. We are much more doing tropes. We like to play in the tropes yeah. of the universe, right? And and you know well enough, too, that Doctor Who doesn't take itself completely seriously. I'd no, say Doctor doesn't. Who is probably like 60% serious and maybe yeah. 40% funny. We just flip that ratio. And so right. we're going like 40% serious and 60% funny. And so we like to do that. And yeah, so that's why I like it. I find it delightful. And I think that's also yeah. why people connected with it too. Yes. I like you a lot. Oh, really? Like that's all you want? That's all you wanted to tell me? I just ended up watching the trailer. That, oh, the, the, yes. That, that was such a great scene. I love that scene so much. Piper's death scene. Yes. I love you. So there's a scene in the book, in the movie, where we brought yeah. that back. And it's wonderful. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you a little sneak about it. But there, sure. there's a scene where... So Piper disappears at the end of the prequel and she's right. just gone. And so one of the mysteries is where is Piper? And what happens is they find themselves in a world where thought becomes reality. And at one point, the, the, one of the women in this world shows the inspector a door and says, go through the door. The thing you want most is inside that room. And so he goes inside and inside is a spaceship and Piper's on the ship. And he and the two of them together are able to solve a problem that neither of them could have solved alone. And they're and they're busy in the middle of this uh, thing. And uh, the inspector goes, Piper, as long as we're here working together, there is something I, I would like to tell you. And she's like, what is it? And he goes, I like you. And she goes, that, that's exactly what you said to me already. And he goes, oh, really? I, I didn't think I had the time with you dying in my arms and everything. No, that's, that's what you said. Yep, 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 yep. Uh, now you know that I really meant it. Yep, yep. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks for that. Yes. Yes. Oh, thank you. <laughs> uh, I, I love that. There was such a good chemistry between you guys and a banter. And it. That's Carrie Karanen, who is uh, yeah. absolutely brilliant. And she's off doing, she's off directing right now and uh, doing her own wonderful things. Yeah. yeah, I miss her a great deal. Yeah, what I love about it and I'll stop being a fanboy in a moment, is it, it is, there are times when I, in fact, I, I do, I am not a fan of overly necessary, some of the modern movies that are just, just silly, right? Mm. I, now, I had never seen anything like Airplane, and I will understand that this, the craziness of that but sometimes there'll be movies where it's a parody and it just i i can't turn off my brain you guys have just the right amount you're playing yeah you're, you're playing it straight and letting the writing do the comedy and that's the kind of stuff we love too so yeah there isn't that wink oh look what i did here it's nope i'm gonna give this and you're gonna catch it or you're not but either way, I'm going to give you a good story. Yeah, well, uh, the comedy is in uh, someone like the inspector just ha not having a clue. He doesn't have any hearts. He's yeah. uh, he's just doesn't know how people work. And yeah. yeah, that's really the the funniness of it. Yeah, and uh, I remember reading an interview with I think it was Robert Asprint who did the all the different. Why am I now? I'm drawing a blank. This the this whole series of comedy fantasy novels. And he started doing a little fake quote at the end of every beginning of every chapter that mm. was about it. And he said that ended up being harder 
than the actual writing the story, coming up with the fake quirks. I wonder how much the fake voiceover about will these questions be answered not next time <laughs> was that as sometimes difficult more than just the script i love those bits and honestly i loved putting in all those little easter eggs the pre-episode thing with the bbc yeah. and yeah. or, or and British it, television it, what i once again i'm fanboy but i love the idea at first you're watching british tv and then the next one a little more and then at the end little... we used to have an empire yeah, it gets a little weirder every time. And same yeah. thing with the questions at the end. That was no, that was uh, an homage to the old Batman serial where, yeah. like, how will they get out of this one? Or yeah. or, or the end of uh, Rocking Bullwinkle was always like that, yes, right? Yes, exactly. Oh, that's um, greatness. So, yeah. I, and I loved being able to do that voice myself. And as it goes, I think Eric Loya actually wrote those okay. uh, those questions. Will these, will these questions not be answered? No. The way he phrased it was, there's a couple yeah. of them that are like, how many? Anyway, and the last one is like, how many plot holes are left unresolved? Yes, I love and, that. Uh... Yeah, it's really funny. And another favorite note was the, okay, now then, who's good and who's bad? Well, good, bad. Oh, they God. switch back, well, right? That was the, that got, that made me laugh out loud reading it. When Eric sent yes. me that in the script, I was like, I was dying and there's an outtakes of okay. that moment of that scene i could not hold it together with carrie karenan yeah because she would go she'd go the way to deliver the way the line is written is now then i defy any one of you to know conclusively who is good and who is evil that's the line but carrie yeah. karenan would go now i defy any one of you to know conclusively who is good <laughs> and who is evil even now and just yes. in the scene where we episode two, I think, where we are face to face and doing yeah. the flea fled flown yes. thing, we have to come be nose to nose. And, and she goes, but and I go, what is it? What if? Yeah. <laughs> and she the way she did. It, and I was and she was so angry at me for cracking up. Sure. But yeah, you watch the outtakes. I will do that. Travis I love is... that show and I want to do it so badly. It's, it's yeah. It deserves to have more. It's actually good. And I can say that without being too self-aggrandizing because it was a collaborative effort. It wasn't yeah. just me writing it. Eric Loya is a, an amazingly funny writer. He's off teaching literature right now at a school in Tennessee. Yeah. And, and Carrie Karen is a brilliant actress who's off directing her own stuff. But it really yeah. was this little, it just a little wonderful gem that is taken so i'm so thrilled and oh. you're right what a blessing because rob said hey do you have time to interview another writer and i go sure and he says and then once he told me like let me drop everything now and talk to him oh. um travis this was a blast please come back when you're going to promote the new book okay absolutely uh, i absolutely. would love this right, we're well, going thank to you for stop. showering me with self-esteem this has been great well, that's great all right anyway so i gotta know before we answer this question why uh, you've probably explained this before to other people but why this song yeah yes that's a perfect segue jay armstrong who is an honors english teacher he is now retired but he's a huge bruce springsteen fan and he was he joined me early in the one of my early episodes of the podcast 
And he talked about that in his honors English class, he would give his students the lyrics to Thunder Road and they would read it as if it was a poem. And he would compare it to like Robert Frost, The Road Not Taken. He would talk okay. about the lyrics and the imagery Bruce is portraying. And he says, and he spends two days breaking apart, going over, discussing it. And then at the end of the two days, he asks his class, does Mary get in the car? So when he told me that, Travis, I went, what? Well, of course she gets in the car. What? That's not even a question. What do you mm -hmm. mean? I said, the lyrics are, we're pulling out of here to win. He goes, if you look at the lyrics, it's, I'm pulling, I'm pulling out, out of here. Out of here I said, what yeah, the fuck? No, Wait a minute. It is unanswered. Technically. It is unanswered. And so I thought, and so this is has become my version of the actor's studio, you know, where okay. he ends that. So sure. um, yep. I have every one of my guests who does the homework or is kind enough to listen to that because there is no right answer. There is. I think there is. Okay. All right. I think so, there is a definitive answer. All right. So Travis, your question, does Mary mm -hmm. get in the car? Yeah, I think she does. And I'll tell you why. Because as storytellers, we tell stories about the moment when, or the day when. And I'm talking about the day you were pushed so hard, you couldn't take it anymore. Or the day that the world went on fire or the day that aliens attack. No one, no one cares about the days when nothing happens. So this is the day when Mary said yes, even though the road is littered with the corpses of all those boys she said no to, the ghosts, not corpses, of all those boys she said no to. This is the day she said yes. And I think uh, because it's a story that's being told, and especially in the way Bruce Springsteen tells stories. Like, he, he probably has a song out there about, you know, I woke up in the morning and brushed my teeth. I went to the kitchen and ate some eggs. I made some toast, too, and some hash browns. I got some coffee and I put some cream in it. You know, no doubt he has them uh, out there. So, um, but it is a story. And the point of this story is Mary. And I think that she has to have said yes. That is a brilliant answer, and I don't always get a Bruce impression, so thank you for that. You're um, welcome. <laughs> yeah. I've never tried one until this very moment, to be honest. Yeah. So there you go. Uh, believe it or not, 50-50. About 50 people say yes, about 50% really? say yes, and 50% say no. That is interesting. And I would be interested to see some demographic information on that. Yes. Uh, I'd be willing to bet that most of your writers say yes, but that's yes. just my impression. So I will tell you one of my favorites, Warren Zane, who has written, a, he's worked with Garth Brooks on some tabletop books. He wrote a biography of Tom Petty. His latest book I had him on is Delivery from Nowhere. The mm -hmm. Making of Bruce Springsteen's Nebraska, which is a fascinating book about why did Bruce Springsteen, after the river, which is his first true commercial success, okay. do Nebraska, which was this little intimate album. And then the next album was Born in the USA, where he went to the universe. Why did he need to take that step back? His answer is that it's all in the singer's head. He said in high school, there was, and he named a girl, so I'm just going to say Marianne. 
He said, I asked Marianne a thousand times to go out all in my mind. I never had the courage to go talk to her directly. But in my mind, I'd asked her out time and time again. His feeling was the singer, it's all in his mind. He's never had the courage to actually go talk to Mary. Yeah, but that's a... Okay, so what that is doing is putting a another story on top of the story based on your uh, yeah. personal mm-hmm. preconceptions, right? So that information is not... support that, that supposition is not supported in any yes. way by the text. And that's something that has always bugged me about okay. about analyzing literature, especially. Oh, let's look at let's look at Shakespeare and see what did he mean by the goblet was on the table? Did he actually mean that the woman's soul was was buried within that goblet and it was weighted down by the heavy oak? No, it means the goblet was on the table. Sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. The other thing it might be interesting for you, I love this answer. A guy said, it depends. I said, what do you mean? He said, if it's the full E Street band doing it, oh. she gets in the car. Oh. If it's Bruce solo, she didn't. And yeah, so if you have some free time, go to YouTube, listen to the whole band, do it live, and then watch Bruce doing it solo. Mm. And the idea is solo. The way he sings, she said no. The other story that, but I, yeah. what I before we get away from that, yeah. I thought for a second that this was going to be some physicist telling you that it was Schrodinger's Mary. Yeah, so Schrodinger <laughs> both both yeah. got in the car and didn't get in the yeah. car until you observe one or the other. So Brian Koppelman, I was lucky enough to have him on the podcast from Billions, creator uh-huh. of Billions, and yeah. he said we don't need to know. The, the reason the song is so great is we don't know the answer. I like, I can appreciate that a lot. And as a writer, there are stories where it doesn't, it's not important to yeah. know the, it's the journey. Yeah. And in this case, yes, that also is what is in the text, right? If he, If we needed to know, we'd have been told. Thank you, sir, so much. You're welcome anytime. Everyone, The Vampire's Curse is available wherever you find books. It sounds like it's going to be an amazing journey. I wish you continued success, Travis. You please come back. If someone wants to reach you, what's the best way? Probably on, uh, oh, Instagram. I'm the Travis Ritchie on Instagram. I'm just Travis Ritchie on YouTube. And yeah, feel free, reach out, say hi. I'm not on I'm not on Twitter anymore after the ownership change. I saw that you said yes. So I I understand why. All yeah. right, listeners, go check it out. Man, if you've watched the web series before, do yourself a favor, go back and watch it. If you've never watched it, even if you're not a Doctor Who fan, if you just want to have about 25, 30 minutes of joy in your life. Go watch it. For now, be safe, be kind, and we'll talk to you soon. Goodbye. You just heard the fun talking, hard rocking, music loving, album ranking, fan thinking, joy spreading, lyric reading, story sharing podcast that is the one, the only. That listening, Bruce. The theme 
for Setless Sick Bruce was written by David Rosen, used by permission. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.